0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm the host today, Kaveh Rafi, a PhD candidate in art history at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Today I'm excited interviewing Pamela Karimi about her new book, Alternative Iran, Contemporary Art and Critical Spatial Practice, published by Stanford University Press in August 2022. Professor Karimi is an architect and architectural historian. She earned her PhD from the History, Theory, and Criticism of Art and Architecture program at MIT in 2009. Her primary field of specialization is art, architecture, and visual. Culture of mob the modern Middle East. Her second area of research is design and sustainability in North America. She is currently a professor and art history faculty at the University of Massachusetts at Dortmund. She also authored numerous books and publications, including Alternative Iran, which we'll be discussing today. Alternative Iran explores a wide range of artistic projects, including site-specific installation. Performances, theater productions, and cultural sites as the embodiment of what Professor Karimi calls alternative spaces. Often, these spaces and experiments are subterranean, but at the other times they remain hidden in plain sight. Alternative spatial organization have served as a platform for reenactments, negotiation, as well as contentions over the abstract ideas. Most importantly the concept of Farsi-Azadi, or freedom. For the past few months, I've never seen a concept so tangible as it fills the air to the protesters' chant and fuses the street in Iran, allowing visual, auditory, olfactory, and tactile interaction within a liberated space. That is why alternative Iran's engagement with spatial organization cannot be more timely. In addition, the book is an absolute treasure trove of experimental artistic projects and alternative cultural venues for anyone interested in art and culture. Alternative Iran was awarded a miller Mice publication fund, uh, fund from the College of Art Association, as well as a publication grant from the Graham Foundation in Advanced Studies in the Fine Art. It is an honor to have you, Pamela,
1: Thank you so much for
2: having me, come. Uh I I always ask the author about their background, uh, where they were born, and where they attended school. Reading your book, I I, I wonder perhaps this question would help most uh, to clarify the book's prose style. It. It's somewhat uncommon in art history, because, uh, art historical is called, uh, scholarship. And, and I, I think also it would lead us to focus on the overarching theme, which is this ephemeral social uh, spatial experience in, in Iran. And the book's very much opening with this fascinating autobiographical account of you attending lectures on art history at this artist's studio located in in almost a maze like uh you know corridors uh in a a mall in tehran um during the iran iraq war when the sirens would go off while the people were running for the shelters it's a very captivating story i mean it's it's, to, to some extent it's like almost as this Alice in Wonderland, uh, and 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 this first account, uh, first hand account, very much illustrates the extent to which these spaces constitutes everyday life in Iran. I wonder if you might begin by telling us about yourself, your interests, and how the books came about.
1: Absolutely, thank you, Kaveh, for highlighting uh, the um, the first few. The story of the first uh, few pages of the book, because as you said, um, actually, this book um, relies heavily upon uh, both the experience of the artist as well as the experience that I've had um, as a person growing up in post-revolutionary Iran. Um, I was involved um, in the art world from a very young age. Uh, My father uh, was uh, a civil engineer who also collaborated with a lot of architects uh, and my parents were in general very very interested in culture and the arts. My mother also a history teacher so they they sent us from a very young age um, to these um, uh, to these um, artists, Videos, uh, that operated um, independent uh, of official and governmental institutions. And they taught us painting. They taught us drawing. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they also, a lot of these amazing uh, teachers who uh, operated these um, independent institutions uh, were also former university professors. They were very, very um, uh, um uh, scholarly in their approach, um, so they also offered art history um, uh, teaching uh, within the context of the studio, and that was my first exposure to the to the world of art. I started going to these uh, institutions um, at the age of. Um, and I continued um, um, until uh, I entered college, um, College of Architecture. And as an architect, um, I was always interested in space, how um, people navigate their way through the different spaces um, in Iran and um, in Iran and um, in different um, circumstances. Um, um, so when I Decided to write a book about contemporary art practices in Iran, I was very much um, um, intrigued by uh, this whole notion of um, navigating uh, your way through the spaces of the city, through the spaces of the so-called underground, and, and, and all the other um, uh, spatial circumstances that have allowed um, Iranian artists to thrive and to create a unique Uh, art form uh, in Iran Um, since the Islamic revolution, there have been a lot of artists in Iran who have operated um, um, on so many different um, levels um, and also who have worked on so many different genres. Uh, But I think that what fascinated me was the ways in which they navigated their way through space. Um, so that's why this book was inspired my background and my practice. And finally, uh, my um, exposure to the ways in which American artists here in the United States actually operate in different um, informal spaces. Um, Uh, was also uh, something that inspired me to think more deeply about the connection between what's happening in Iran and the rest of the world. So these are basically the two sources of inspiration uh, for the book's um, basic concept, which is the relationship between art and space.
2: Yeah, uh, so as you mentioned, like these informal spaces, maybe uh, to begin, uh, uh, I think maybe we we can... uh, Refer to the term in, in Farsi, you use, you know, many Farsi words uh, and also with the translation. And it was very fascinating. Some one of these fascinating words in Farsi is zirzamini, as you mentioned, uh, which translates to underground. Uh, so zirzamini in Farsi also means base. Zirzamini also in Farsi means basement. Uh, uh, thus, you know, when we use zirzamini in Farsi, there is always this architectural illusion which I found relevant very much to the book's focus on this most of the built environment Um, and often the underground is associated with the practice that you know happen in hidden place especially to avoid censorship however you convincingly show that this zirzamini is more complicated and the purpose, uh, and, and you propose actually the alternative in a more nuanced manner instead. Uh, could you tell us about these alternative space? Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. Since the Islamic revolution covered, there's been a lot of stories about the Zirzamini artists, the Zirzahmini mu- musicians, right? The people who operate in the physical underground um, of Iran. And there has been actually pictures of them uh, performing in um, these underground spaces that are literally, uh, uh, you know, um, the basement of homes, the basements of different institutions or different uh, buildings. Um, and, um, and I was very, very curious about uh, what this um, underground um, uh, kind of obsession means for Iran. Is it about illegal works that are completely rejected by the officials and by the main uh, kind of governmental body, which is called the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance that issues um, permission for all the um, art project projects and music and theatrical performances that take place in Iran? Um, is it something about them being illegal, meaning that they they haven't been successful in gaining permission from the ministry, or that they have uh, avoided getting the permission from the ministry, that they go underground, or is there something else implied? And during the course of my investigations for this um, book, actually, I realized that in Iran, things are much more complicated than when we think here. Uh, uh, you know, they're not as black and white as they seem. At least not in the past 43 years and before this September, when the protests of woman, life, freedom have happened in Iran, and things have become a little bit bolder, a little bit more black and white. But before that, prior to September 16 of 2022 things were always um, operating in the gray zones. And, and by that, I mean that, um, you know, you, you see a picture of um, a theatrical performance in the in, in a subterranean thermal bath in central Tehran. And you may assume immediately that this is some sort of illegal uh, kind of operation. This is something that does not have permission from the ministry of culture and Islamic guidance, but actually I figured out that a lot of them actually do secure permission from the ministry. So why? Then the question is why there is this desire to move away from the center, to perform in an underground thermal bath instead of uh, stage in an official um, performance hall, to go away Uh, from Tehran go to the middle of the desert or go to the forests of the north and create um, installation projects in those areas in the middle of nature as opposed to uh, creating them in the context of the galleries and the official museums of the capital or why is it that we have performances that are ephemeral, meaning that they operate in very, very short spans of time. Um, and then before the police comes, before the uh, the state authorities come to question the project, they've already packed their stuff and gone. Um, and why is it that there's so much improvisation and negotiation between gallery directors, curators, and artists of all kinds. So these kinds of complicated processes um, that involved so many different actors uh, from directors and, uh, and, uh, uh, and gallery curators to artists themselves, uh, actually uh, uh, allowed me to write a more complicated story of the art scenes in, uh, in Iran.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, exactly. That's that's a, what really much very much stands out to me. These comp these complexities, and also this you know th- during these four decades, the changes uh, that you beautifully trace. Uh, I think you you perfectly lay out in 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 in, in just uh, uh, in your. Uh, uh, respond to my question about this. The outline of the book, right? The the book you 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 beautiful lay out this outline, these four chapters. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how uh, you come up with this structure and uh, you know what was the rationale? Ah.
1: Absolutely, Kaveh. This this was not an easy book to write, Kaveh, because um, I was dealing with. Um, more than 120 artists that I interviewed um, and, and, and I should say actually art experts because not all of them are art makers. Some of them are managers, some of them are directors um, and things of that nature. And so the big problem for me was to come up with a format, with a structure that can bring all of these different artists from different genres together. I needed a red thread to connect all of these stories together. To create um, a story about post-revolutionary art in Iran um, that represents a movement rather than different stylistic approaches or iconographical references to certain political themes and so on and so forth. So I noticed that uh, there was something in common in all of these artists that I studied. And that common thing was how they operated in different spaces, the spaces of the city, spaces of nature, uh, and um, spaces of homes and and interior spaces um, of of their lives, of their day-to-day lives. Um, So that's why the organization um, of this book um, actually uh, took place um, uh, in terms of um, the ways in which these artists navigate um, uh, via these um, spatial axes. Um, So for example, the first chapter uh, is titled Invisibility, and it's mostly about artistic activities um, that take place in Um, underground spaces. And by that, I mean literally underground spaces, the basements of homes. We know that a lot of post-revolutionary galleries actually were created in the basements of private homes. And over time, uh, they actually became official by gaining permission from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance. But first and foremost, uh, a lot of them were unofficial underground activities, even if... They presented art that doesn't look at all political, that doesn't look at all uh, a, a challenge to the Islamic regime, uh, but nonetheless, because um, uh, arts, especially during the 1980s and during the Iran-Iraq War, was very, very limited, uh, these uh, uh, activities had to happen um, in the underground. Um, chapter 2 uh, is titled Escapism, uh, that actually uh, summarizes um, a series of case studies um, uh, that are um, about artists who want to um, stay away from the center. And by center, I mean Tehran. Actually, this book is about 450 pages. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to focus on artists in other cities, so most of the artists that I discuss in this book are actually based in Tehran, but if they go to other cities, if they go to natural spots that are very, very far from the capital, uh, they they still remain the Tehrani artists um, that are the main protagonists of this book. So chapter two, escapism, is actually about moving away from the center and moving along these horizontal lines and going away to the middle of Iran's central desert or to the forests of the Caspian in order to have a little bit more freedom of expression for these artistic practices. Chapter three, Ephemerality, as I said, actually focuses on the concept of time, how time and space work in relation to each other in artistic practices of post-revolutionary Iran. Chapter four is called Improvisation, Um, and um, in this chapter, I focus mostly on the ways in which curatorial activities negotiate their way within the system that the Islamic Republic has created for artists. And I must say that in each of these chapters, I actually rely on critical theory and mostly critical spatial theory that was developed you know, in the French context, post World War II French context, uh, like uh, like the work of the works of uh, Michel de Certeau, Henri Lefebvre, uh, and and Situationist Internationals, but also some uh, during the 1960s um, and uh, the different political movements that were very prominent here in the United States of America, um, uh, and also um, some some theories that might not. Uh, be uh, uh, mostly familiar with our audiences, for example affect theory, Sarah Amet's um, studies of affects and emotions uh, was really informative to me Um, theories of jazz um, articulated uh, by scholars like Berlin uh, have also been uh, very very useful to me because it is within these theories that you find um, uh, you find uh, a way to describe things in those in-between places. So instead of like going uh, through the black and white world that we often know of Iran, I needed to talk about these gray areas, these in-between moments, um, and therefore I needed to uh, kind of rely upon these theoretical concepts in order to justify my claims.
2: Which which I think beautifully work out because like the the, the the vastness of the field I mean that you cover in the book it's amazing uh, you discuss art uh, theater you know alternative theater architecture and 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 how does all these you know performances uh, uh, practices and projects coming together and just these knots connected to this spatial exploration experience. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, spe- specifically, like, as you mentioned, uh, the more than 100 interviews with artists, theater experts, urban visionaries, designers, architects, all coming together. And it's, it's beautifully, like, Tailored uh, in a sense that the book is very much re- smoothly re- readable. It's even like for I, I, I see I'm coming from background of artistry. Uh, uh, the, the book might be sometimes technical, but I can see even uh, uh, for for someone that coming from the art artistry background can see the connections, and 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 that's that's a beautiful you know, layout for the book. And I think what you also mentioned about this, uh, your methodology specifically, as you mentioned, like you adopted this improvised approach. That's very much, very, 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 very well worked uh, in the books. Uh, And I I want actually want to follow up uh, with the idea that you mentioned about uh, this uh, what's called sen- sensuous uh, scholarship. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm curious. Uh, can you uh, a bit, um, ex- you know, uh, unpack this uh, idea uh, for us? I think very much closely uh, related to your the, the the treatment of these materials in the book and your approach.
1: Yes, absolutely. I borrowed the term uh, sensuous um, uh, um, scholarship from. Um, uh, Paul Stoller, who has written a book uh, of the same title about um, a sort of anthropological investigation that engages the body and the feelings of um, of the anthropologist um, in the subject of his or her study. Um, and along the same lines, um, I think that Sarah Ahmed's uh, um, um, uh, you know, elaborations on the significance of affect and, hem- and emotion are also very very important um, in this process. So um, to make it a little bit more clear, uh, um, because you know, I, you ask specifically about sensuality and and emotions and affect. Um, I I just want to tell you that um, when we think about emotions and feelings, we often um, regard them as um, personal things, right? Um, Like people feel sad, people feel happy, people feel angry about something. Uh, but then these scholars allow us to see that these feelings are actually contagious, meaning that they can spread in the society and they can create certain ideologies, they can create certain orientations uh towards a subject matter or towards uh something that is important to people a belief system and so on and so forth um and that was very very important to me because in many of these art practices that i studied things are pretty abstract actually you know, art, that's thats what makes visual arts different from literature or poetry. People don't exactly articulate what they mean by what they've made or what they make their audiences do during an interactive performance, uh, but then you you see that through the feelings um, or the uh, emotional reactions uh, of the audiences, certain meanings uh, uh, are generated. I give you a, a very tangible example of this experience. Um, I was in Tehran in 2006 when Farideh Shah Savarani created her gigantic installation uh, I wrote, you read, uh, in uh, the dilapidated former headquarters of the Atalaat newspaper, uh, which is a very conservative newspaper, by the way, in Iran. And uh, this structure was just abandoned because Atalaat had moved uh, its uh, headquarters to another building. Uh, This is a relatively, um, you know, old building, and and it's dilapidated. And on the three floors of this gigantic building, um, she created this um, breathtaking installation of newspaper scraps that she um, attached to the walls, the piers, the columns, and to the ceilings of these rooms. And so uh, this was created... uh, At the height of Ahmadinejad's, President Ahmadinejad's uh, arrest and interrogation of journalists. So this was a direct response to how the government was treating uh, journalism in Iran. However, both the artists and the visitors were pretty quiet about (laughs) what this meant and what they were doing there. I was amongst them. I was walking with them and I noticed some people were like holding holding these peers in their arms crying some people (coughs) I apologize some people um were getting a little bit emotional they were crying and the artist herself being aware of what she was doing she actually um brought um, a few of her students blindfolded to the exhibition and she asked them to record their feelings and their emotions about what what they were going through and what this meant for them. Um, This exhibition took place in November. It was pretty cold in Tehran uh, that year, I remember that. And these students have recorded their voices and I have that recording and I'm grateful to the artist who um, generously offered it to me. Uh, they're talking about the experience of walking through these halls and feeling um, the coldness and the anxiety that these spaces give them. Uh, walking through the newspapers because the newspapers were also the newspaper pieces were also spread on the floor, and and the kind of sound that they made um, made them a little bit agitated. And therefore, I think that. This is an example of an art installation, highly political, that can be only expressed through these feelings. And the artist intentionally did not want to kind of make a a very clear statement about what this whole experience was about, but rather she wanted to engage the feelings and the emotions of her visitors into the artwork. So when we talk about how these artworks actually create some sort of affect or engage the feelings of their visitors. Um, this is, this is a tangible example. but of course, you know, there's so many case studies in this book and I'm sure that uh, the readers can find more interesting examples in the book as well.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe.
2: I think traumatic also experience and I think that's about very uh, again okay, a uh, wonderful sp- story to um I think <clears throat> capture um uh, these kind of experience uh maybe my question uh my next question maybe I want to move specifically to the chapter one um uh, when you discussed visibility and invisibility and uh, the order uh, which is which is pretty much complex uh, so as you sh- as, as as you've sh- shown in the book, the emergence of these alternative space in residential and private spaces uh, I think the, the, the word is, I, I think it's you, you also might use uh, if I'm not mistaken, it came up this kind of out of a need uh, and it seems that this need is kind of the need between being visible and also invisible. Uh, Sometimes even in Iran, people want to be invisible. And specifically, I see this invisibility very much also tied to this class structure uh, in in a very interesting way. So this becomes a kind of as a purview of the wealthy, they, you know, they they can, you know, uh, you know, afford uh, these the spaces and the privilege for this kind of very much the private space to, to enjoy right living beyond the social restrictions and becomes invisible in this in certain sense so they 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 can this kind of relax in in, in some of these uh, more restricting um, you know public rules. Uh, which is very much interesting, and since the 1990s, uh, very much with the adaptation of neoliberal policies and the, the, the uh, deepening wealth gap, which was very much ex- exacerbated by the widespread uh, spread privatization, corruption, sanction, and the lifting of uh, subsidies during the specifically during the president Ahmadinejad and later on. Uh, It it seems to me that there is a complex social dimension to these spaces in terms of visibility and invisibility. What would be the best way for us to navigate this murky politics of these spaces within the matrix of privatization, and neoliberal policy, resistance and censorship, uh, perhaps?
1: Thank you, Kavit. Yes, that was um, another uh, very challenging um, topic that I had to deal with in this book, uh, because as you say, there is also a class dilemma here. Uh, there are some critics in Iran uh, who actually accuse artists of, um, and, and, and here we're talking about like top-notch artists, artists who are well-paid and have become famous and are sponsored by uh, very, very well-connected, wealthy uh, gallerists and so on and so forth. that they create this uh, otherworldly spaces for themselves um, that have nothing to do with the realities of the society. And because they are protected, they can um, actually have the freedom uh, to operate within these quote-unquote alternative spaces. Uh, that was definitely a dilemma for me to deal with, uh, uh, but I, I don't think that all artists uh, belong to that category. There, As I said, uh, there are also artists who actually uh, operate in open public places. There are artists who actually, uh, along with the kind of uh, posh exhibitions that they have in some posh institution, that is by invitation only, perhaps, and is completely private. They also are willing to go to the villages to do some kind of participatory art projects to engage ordinary people. Uh, uh, there are artists uh, like uh, uh, Puya Aryan uh, who actually uses the technique of camouflage. Um, and, I, and I really love how he does this so elegantly. So he touches on very, very sensitive taboo topics, but by melding his art forms into the background of the spatial settings um, in which he places his artwork, uh, he actually confuses the viewer. He also manages to confuse uh, the ministry uh, that issues, that often issues uh, permission for for his art projects. Uh, so whether it's in the context of the desert or in the context of um, a mirror work uh, uh, hall, uh, uh, you know, these mirror work um interiors um, are very popular in 19th century Iran, and sometimes uh, he actually camouflages, he manages to camouflage his own mirror work sculptures against these walls. And so I want to say that a lot of these artists actually operate uh, in in so many different um, platforms that are not just these posh institutions. But you're right about the fact that the neoliberal economy, which was uh, set in motion during the time of President Rafsanjani after the Iran-Iraq War um, and uh, matured during the 1990s, allowed artists and galleries to create private spaces for art. Uh, the first manifestation of that are the Kolangi projects. Kolangi in um, Iranian Uh, Building terminology refers to buildings um, uh, that are emptied of their residence and are are waiting to be demolished, to be replaced by another uh, more profitable building, a residential tower, and so on and so forth. And this happens during the time of President Rafsanjani. Um, And and, uh, so the Tehran municipality actually comes up uh, with uh, a series of new regulations that allows um, construction um, uh, experts um, to do a lot of these activities. So a lot of buildings in Tehran are emptied of their residence and are prepared for these artists to occupy them um, in order to have more room for freedom of expression. Um, So that's one thing. And then uh, going back again to your concern about the class issue. Um, During the course of my interviews with a lot of art experts, I I also came across a lot of criticism of other artist groups, um, so-and-so gallerists, and so on and so forth. As a historian, I don't think that it's my place to cast judgment on any of these individuals, but rather my job is to kind of um, um, show what's happening in Iran. So rather than casting my own judgment upon um, uh, some of these institutions or private uh, entities that have been criticized by others, um, I try to kind of put them in dialogue with their opponents so the last chapter the epilogue of the book actually focuses on these convoluted kind of back and forth dialogues they're mostly intellectual I should say they, there's nothing uh, kind of uh, um, nothing kind of primitive about them they're they're very very intellectual Iranian society is a very very sophisticated society people are very well read and um, and uh, and therefore all of these communications, all of these um, intellectual exchanges um, uh, are important, um, and I try to look for them, and I try to uh, find their traces in all kinds of publications, and I try to uh, present them in the context of the book. And going back to um, one more uh, important point that you brought up in the beginning of your interview, Kabe, about using Farsi terminology. Um, you know in the course of reading all of these dialogues and exchanges of information between different art experts in Iran, or architecture or urban planner experts, I I actually noticed uh, that the Farsi language has developed a lot since the 20, uh, since, you know, the 1990s when I was in Iran. Um, So the language has become very, very sophisticated. And I felt that it's our responsibility to kind of focus on the meanings and associations of these words. You know, we keep talking about decolonizing art history without actually thinking about what the true meaning of a word that they use in the context of Iran is. Is it really an equivalent of what we use in English, or does it have other connotations? So that was my dilemma, and I tried to present it in the book.
2: Yeah, this is the fantastic like the development and and the, the speed of the of, of, of the creation of new Wars uh, it's 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 kind of like uh, fascinating uh, for me I, I left Iran in 2012 and since then I, I see this like so many wars it's just I'm I was unfamiliar and and the book very much helped me although I'm coming from the background of Iran to very much understand uh the 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 expressions, uh, very, very, oh, some of these expressions, very much like I would say, the Saitusizik, very much like uh, tied right to the history uh, and these contingencies in Iran, which is, which is, which is fascinating, and some of these were perfectly captures, um, and it's great opportunity the, uh, to, to, you know to be exposed to some of uh, the, the, how these artists conceptualize uh, using Farsi language, their own practice um, in one way or another, which, which is very interesting. Um, I, I think very appealing to me when I was reading the book. There are many, uh, I mean, threads, uh, you know, when you were speaking, I was thinking to, to as a follow-up, uh, maybe I want to uh, continue uh, uh, or conversation about kolangi and then i want to come back to some other concepts um, that you invoke uh so regarding kolangi um so this this concept of vacant space it seems that this is recurrent in in in, in most almost all chapters in one way or another so and it seems that uh, is an important aftermath of this rapid Urban expansion uh, was, specifically in chapter three, you discuss is leftover spaces, uh, and the, these are this kind of the uh, these uh, remainders of this rapid development, uh, these kind of the unplanned space. Uh, you know, somehow popped up in these urban areas like as a vacant lot, suspended construction sites, unused underpasses, empty water cans. But I want also maybe we can also think about some of these older building, uh, 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 like uh, the homes um, that you mentioned uh, after Rafsanjani's development projects. There are also examples in chapter one ex- uh, as well as... Chapter 4 of the performance and art project that engage with alternative space in also, in anachronistic way, sometimes a site of remembrance. For example, in chapter one, you refer to them as this raw space, and here is this often vacant buildings, uh, spacious one or two story family villas uh, built under the Pahlavi regime, which was overthrown by the revolution in 1979. And you've also written on the abandoned homes, empty streets, and dilapidated factories in the American post-industrial cities, and this unconventional revitalization of these spaces. Uh, it, in the book, you also uh, trace these spaces that are often the products of Iran's shift to this consumer economy. What is the significance of these vac- vacant spaces for alternative art and culture? I know this is really uh, a complex you know, uh, topic, but I-, I will appreciate if you can unpack for us uh, this uh, and its cultural significance and artistic significance of these spaces.
1: Absolutely, Kave. Uh You know, when I when I started uh, my job here at the University of Massachusetts, it was after the uh, 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 the um, the clash, the 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 Wall Street clash, um, and the decline in economy. The city of Detroit became bankrupt, and I remember vividly how much we all as educators, we all became fascinated by how artists actually went to Detroit, occupied these empty places, and started to actually give new meanings um, to these spaces. Richard Florida wrote a book um, called The The Creative Class in which he talks about the role of artists uh, in revamping and revitalizing um, a declining environment. I myself live in an American post-industrial city in Massachusetts. Here in Massachusetts, we call them... Um Gateway cities, because these were gateways of opportunities to Europeans uh, who came to the United States and they were hired by a lot of textile factories um, that were present in Massachusetts um, in the 19th century. But then uh, the economy shifts, right? A lot of these industries actually are moved to uh, third world countries. Uh, uh, um, and therefore, you um, um, all of these buildings uh, uh, have uh, become uh, vacant. Um, and uh, so what do we do with them? Mm-hmm. Artists actually um, um, are very important in terms of how they make use of these spaces in the United States of America. You know, some um, uh, some actually um, worry that um, the gentrification of these areas um, is also partially related to the presence of artists because artists go somewhere and then these places become tourist destinations and then powerful agents go ahead and take advantage of the opportunity and build Starbucks, Bank of America headquarters and so on and so forth in these areas. So they become gentrified and even artists themselves cannot afford to live and operate in these spaces. So we, we know that problem. So I wanted to understand where Iran stands um, in relation to this history that was very, very contemporary to me and very present to me, part of my own teaching. I actually involve my students in the post-industrial city and I encourage them to think about revamping some of these vacant lots and vacant spaces. And so I wanted to understand if Iran is also following the same genealogy and the same kind of processes, economic processes, or that in some ways Iran is different. Because when you write... Uh, history of art um, of a certain country, uh, by default, you have to kind of define where this artistic movement stands in relation to the broader history of art, to the global history of art. And the more I investigated, I realized that Iran actually, to some extent, um, these processes are similar to what's happening um, in the United States because of the neoliberal economy that is also A thing in Iran, even though it's the Islamic version of that, according to politicians and economists, if you ask them. Um, But to a larger extent, uh, also these practices resemble the practices of artists in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, Uh, like um, uh, the situation in Iran back then before uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the communist regimes. Uh, there was this desire among the artists of the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union to move themselves away from the official center of of arts um, and and performances and all kinds of creative activities. And therefore, they were attracted to dilapidated buildings. Actually, I interviewed Moscow-based artists, and it breaks my heart because um, actually one of them got COVID and passed away after uh, I interviewed him. But actually... I interviewed them because I I wanted to get as close as possible to the reality of what was happening in the 1980s before the fall of communism in Moscow and it was very interesting to me what it meant for them in relation to the KGB, how they defined it as an alternative to the official artistic platforms and so on and so forth. So I think that Iran in some ways uh, the story of um, uh, these alternative spaces in Iran resonates with Uh, the situation in other authoritative systems um, where artists are subject to censorship, heavy censorship, Um, and in other ways um, it's actually tied to the global um, economical developments um, that are um, resulting from uh, the implementation of neoliberal economy. Um, So uh, in the book um, I've tried to get into the details of that, um, but I think for the purpose of this platform, uh, I think this uh, this answer was hopefully uh, convincing enough, Kaveh.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I, I, I highly recommend that the audience uh, check out the book, uh, especially the the book. Provides so many examples and and beautifully articulate uh, the, the point. Uh, yeah, uh, m- maybe my next question. I want uh, to move to these environmental concerns. I know that you're you're working you know you work very much engaged with environmental art as well in architecture, uh, and I want to uh, very much. Think about this chapter two, because it stands out uh, because it's unlike most of the project in the book, uh, which is in one way or another, have to do with urban spaces. This chapter charts the project in remote areas away from metropoles, specifically Tehran. Uh, so you use this. Expression uh, escape, escaping without living, which you borrow from the French cultural critic uh, Michel de Certeau, regarding this post-revolutionary Iran art project in remote natural sites it appears that, and I think you argued uh, in the book that they are motivated these artists are motivated uh, more by escaping state control censorship over and over urban surveillance than by any, for example, ethnographic or environmental concern. You you, you provide a really interesting uh, examples. You mentioned the tactic deployed by the of, uh, theater group uh, to circumvent censorship and simultaneously seek unconventional space to outdoor rehearsals under the ages of ecotourism, Uh, but it's not quite very much ecotourism or related to environment, but they they, they collaborate with environmental activists So what's fascinating is within a transnational framework you provide in the book, you incorporate examples from the U.S. and Soviets uh, into the conversation about art projects involved with nature incursions since the 1960s. It seems that these environmental concerns are not, as as just mentioned, like as not important as it is, for example, in the context of North America. Could you tell us more about uh, these uh, projects and what's different about the Iran?
1: Absolutely, Kaveh. I I actually am deeply interested in environmental issues in the Middle East because I think that um, whether we want to accept it or not, a lot of the problems, the social and political problems in the Middle East are rooted in its natural resources and its environmental um, circumstances. Um, and so um, with regard to chapter two, it was a dilemma for me because in Iran, they actually call these art projects that take place in the middle of the desert or in other parts of um the the kind of natural environments of Iran. You know, Iran also, in terms of its environment, it's very diverse um, for some of your audiences who may not know. You know, uh, there there are deserts, um, completely barren deserts. I mean, there's no vegetation whatsoever, so very different from what we see in Arizona, for example. Mm. And then there are are very lush and humid forests in the north, um, in the Caspian region. So when the artists go and uh, do an artistic project in these areas, they often in Iran, they call them land art, uh, or environmental art. Um, And so I was wondering in what ways does it connect to the environmental or land art projects executed by famous American artists like um, Robert Smithson and Michael Heiser in the 1990s? To what extent are they... And similar to these projects and to what extent they have their own autonomy and they have their own um, um, kind of um, very, very um, unique Iranian approach um, to the subject matter. And I realized that they're actually very different from the land art projects of the 1960s in America because, as you know, people like Robert Smithson and Michael Heiser were predominantly Fascinated by form and also fascinated by, by the form of the desert, the form of the natural environments in which they implemented their projects. But also, their main goal was to say that we, we don't want the gallery, we don't want the museum, we just want to go out and do whatever we want to do. And of course, they had a lot of financial support to Victoria. Uh, Virginia Dawn uh, famously supported a lot of these gigantic projects um, that actually took a lot of energy and funding to materialize. Um, In Iran, um, um, uh, things become uh, a little bit more convoluted. Um, On the one hand, if you look at the art itself, you may think that, okay, it's another land art project probably inspired by 1960s land art in the US and the UK but actually it's not. In some ways, it's closer to the environmental art projects that took place um, in the former uh, Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union. A lot of these artists actually wanted to stay away from the center go to remote places to have more freedom of expression. And by that, again, I don't mean that they want to do something that is taboo and completely political and against establishment, but they just want to have more freedom to discuss ideas to uh, uh, and to, to express their artistic interests. Um, uh, for example, one of the projects um, that took place in... I believe in 2014 in in the central desert of Iran, and actually involved uh, a couple of visits. Um, uh, Multiple buses from Tehran uh, moved uh, to this place that is very close to the city of Yazd um, in eastern Iran, Um, and the artists actually sat around this land art project and they discussed uh, different um intellectual subject matters so basically the art became an excuse for these people for these artists to come together and have a debate and have a discussion Regarding the off-theater performance, um, actually that's another very interesting example that made things a little bit more complicated for me. Until 2015, um, environmental issues were not politically sensitive in Iran. After 2015, because a lot of um, environmental activists actually came to the fore and criticized the government's policy regarding different environmental resources in Iran, um, environmental became a very very sensitive topic so they started arresting these people some of them were mysteriously killed while in detention and so we know that today uh, putting your finger on an environmental topic is, is very uh, is very tricky but back then when the op theater actually collaborated with uh, an environmental organization and um, and and Uh, uh, eco-tourism organization that was um, spearheaded, I believe, by Ali Inanlu, who's a very famous, um, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a very famous and um, eco-tourist kind of figure in Iran. Um, They they actually went to the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, the off-theater group, and they said, okay, we want to make an art project um, in the mountains or in in a cave outside Tehran. And they said, what are you talking about? Uh, It's important to note that the guidelines of the ministry are very limited. Like they can't, they they don't have rules and regulations on how to perform in a cave or on top of a mountain. So they said, well, this is not theater. Uh, You must be joking. And so, no, we don't give you permission. Um, So in order to be able to do this project, they actually um, packaged their project as an uh, environmental tourism project, um, as an ecological tourism project. Um, And Ali Inanlu and his staff actually collaborated with the artists to take a lot of visitors um, to this spot, uh, um, which was in the middle of a mountain mountainous area, uh, where um, the experimental theater group of, uh, were able to perform uh, their, um, their kind of interactive, uh, experimental um, play. Uh, and it was a very successful project. Um, so when environment comes to the language of uh, these kinds of artistic practices, it does come in in a very, very convoluted, unexpected way.
2: Yeah, I see. Um, uh, we, we, I mean, this is the fascinating, thing, right? The fascinating topic. The, these are lesser discussed um, in terms of the contemporary art and culture in Iran the complexities of the politic involved. Um, so. I, I know I'm aware of the timing. Uh, I have many questions, but perhaps we can move to uh, this very much important topic. I see very much the connection between book book uh, that you're discussing about these spaces and the events unfolding in Iran. Uh, so the, in, in a sense, the book seems to me present, as its title suggests, Alternative Iran uh, – this is right now is on the mind of everyone in Iran, Alternative Iran. Just, I mean, a year ago, it seems very much a far-fetched idea. But today, with the national nationwide uprising, seemingly turning its, perhaps in a revolution, the expression Alternative Iran has captured people's imagination and rekindled a collective sense of building a viable alternative to the current social order. Every day in the street, the protesters activate uh, an alternative space. Uh, And you can see through the media and videos, for example at the beginning of the protest, uh, you, you 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 see this uh, flux of I- videos and images of young girls cheering crowds, raising their arms before ceremoniously tossing their headscarf into the bonfire and all the, all people circle around uh, the, this uh, bonfire and chanting. Um, it's pretty amazing uh, images. So Pamela, uh, you recently also wrote a, an article uh, titled The Maniche of Iran's Protest uh, Art, which was published in Hyperallergic on October 2022, and you look at some of the works produced after the protest erupted. Uh, in the article, you, may, you name a few artists uh, present in the book as well, uh, such as Azad Genje, Puya Aryanpur, and Kata Yune Karami. Do you see any continuation between these alternative spaces in art and culture and the a temporary alternative space, perhaps, uh, that you see in these protests. Uh, uh, but what do you think about? Is there any relationship here?
1: Absolutely, Kaveh. One of the reasons why I, uh, I felt it was important to publish that piece in Hyperallergic is because I saw that there were articles written on you know artists who posted uh, different images uh, of the falling women or young men uh, during the protests. Um, and and I felt like it was necessary to say that art protest art in Iran has not always been so straightforward, uh, that it has had a life of its own, and artists before, The new generation that is practicing right now have gone through tremendous, tremendous difficulties to keep art and culture alive in Iran. I wanted people to know that there have been different shades of uh, protest art in Iran, some of which are not as bold and are not as revolutionary as the art that is being produced in Iran right now. They're much more subtle. Uh, But the subtlety does not mean that um, they were devoid of challenges, Um, they actually Uh, For example, in the case of Av, they circled, the, the theater group literally circled a mountain in order to avoid a bunch of religious groups who didn't want them to perform near their village. So in order to avoid that religious community within a certain village in the mountains, they actually chose another path in order to reach the top of the mountain to perform their art projects. So I think that the Iranian art community has done so much, and there is a history to all of these. And I wanted people to know that that history has not been a very straightforward history. It's been a very complicated history. But today, if we see some brave people coming out and and making amazing art in the middle of the street. I want people to know that they are standing on the shoulders of these giants, uh, the former generation uh, who tried so hard to keep art and culture alive against all odds.
2: Yeah. Thank you. So uh, maybe that's that's my last question. I'm 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 curious uh, if there is any project you're currently uh, working on and any plans uh, for a forthcoming book.
1: Absolutely, Kaveh. I'm right now. I'm working on a project on the environmental design discourse in Iran. Uh, which emerged actually in the last decades of the Pahlavi period, and it continues to this day. Uh, But one of the main protagonists um, that I focus on in the book is Nader Khalili. Uh, Khalili is known for his um, geltafdan system, which is... Um, a system through which he actually improves the performance of adobe structures in iran uh, to make them um, stronger and better for the production of cheap housing and accommodation for earthquake victims and refugees and so on and so forth interestingly enough Khalili uh, used the same technique, which doesn't require a lot of wealth uh, or a lot of facilities or technologies. It's very environmentally friendly to propose outposts uh, for lunar surfaces. Um, so by using regolith, which is uh, the soil of any lunar surface, Khalili proposed in the early 1980s to NASA a very, very interesting project. Uh, Uh, through which uh, we can actually uh, move to other, um, uh, you know, planets in the case of an environmental disaster on Earth without having to uh, depend on um, gigantic sources of finance. Um, So um, I am fascinated by the process through which this whole idea uh, was developed. Um, and also, another angle in my study is the relationship between environmental design and the spirituality and Sufism uh, uh, that Iranian architects were very fascinated by during the 1970s. Uh, uh, today in Iran, uh, There are also some environmental um, art projects, low tech, very environmentally friendly productions uh, that are not known uh, to the outside world. And these are also some of the case studies that I'm exploring um, uh, to to kind of um, bring in into this book. So that's what I'm working on right now. And to me, it's, um, it's yet another important dimension about design, and um, and and creativity in Iran that needs to be told.
2: Oh, thank you. Uh, so, uh, for anyone uh, interested in uh, what um, and has a question of what's going on in Iran, I want I want encourage them to check out the book Alternative Iran: Contemporary Art and Critical Spatial Practice uh, by Professor Pamela Karimi and also her brilliant. Uh, article on the recent uh, revolutionary art in Iran, the many shades of Iran's uh, protest art. Uh, Thank you, Kamala. Thank you for taking your time writing this book and and showing that there is a real history, right, in terms of these uh, whole contesting the space the thinking and uh, about the alternative so it's not that like all of a sudden these all these movements and peoples right resistance just uh, happens it's just there is whole history as you mentioned uh, thank you uh, for taking your time and t- uh, coming to this program and uh, discussing the book with me I greatly uh, uh, appreciate your time
1: Thank you coming.